on this episode of This Calling. By the time he got to the end of that prayer, I was like, where has this been? I fell in love hard and fast. Welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this Holy Week special episode, I talk to Gary Manning. Gary is a priest in the Episcopal Church, serving a parish in the suburbs of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We talk about his early years as a Pentecostal, a time of personal struggle, and Christmas Eve at an Episcopal church which felt like coming home. Here's our conversation. Well, Gary Manning, you are now on this calling How are you doing with all this coronavirus stuff in Holy Week? We're recording this on Monday in Holy Week. Well, I'm good, Chris. Uh, There is the unique opportunity of trying to figure out how to do Holy Week when everyone is self-isolating. We are in the middle of preparing things that will be offered digitally. And there is a different sort of energy about that as you have yourself experienced. How many times have you dispersed into tears thinking this is, I never thought that would be in this situation. Uh, oh, yes. It actually has been more frequent than I thought. And on Friday, I received an MP3 file from our parish musician for the piece of music that we were going to lead into Palm Sunday's video with and it was my song is love unknown Mm. and i simply sat there and listened to it two or three times and had a good cry well let's 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 get into your vocation your calling story um maybe maybe at the very least it'll distract us from viruses for an hour um that sounds good so where are you now you're a parish priest in the episcopal church yes Yes, I'm the rector of Trinity Episcopal Church in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. Wauwatosa is an inner-ring suburb of Milwaukee. Mm. I've been here for 15 years. This is what people in this part of the country would call a larger parish, what we would call in the south or back east, we would probably call it a medium-sized parish, about 400 parishioners And I know we don't use these numbers anymore, but the average Sunday when all the stars align and we're not self-quarantining and soccer schedules permit and the Packer schedules permit, on the right Sunday, we'll have about 165 to 175 people total uh, join us for liturgy. So you said back in the South, and we can all tell from your accent, you are not from Wisconsin originally. This is this is true. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, 
and I will always say I grew up in Richmond because if you want, if you weren't born in Richmond, you can never be from Richmond. <laughs> so I grew up there. I, my family moved there when I was six years old and that's where I stayed until I went to college. And then shortly after graduating from college, I returned and lived there for two or three more years before I moved to Florida, Northeast Florida, just north of Jacksonville. Okay. So we're going to find out how you get from Richmond, Virginia to Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, and how you get from being a kid doing whatever you did when you were a kid to being a priest in the Episcopal church. So um, did you grow up in the Episcopal church? What are your religious roots? No, I did not grow up Episcopalian. My mom was a Pentecostal, and so I grew up in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. It is Hmm. the predominantly southeastern expression of Pentecostalism, while the Azusa Street Revival was having a big time out west. The in the mountains of the intersection of Georgia, Tennessee, and extremely western North Carolina, there were a group of holiness folk who had a a Pentecostal moment, an experience of speaking in tongues and the gifts of the Spirit as they understood them. And so what came out of that was the church now called the Church of God. And it always identifies as Cleveland, Tennessee, because there's another Church of God, which is not Pentecostal, um, the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana. So I grew up Church of God, which back in the day was still very much a holiness Pentecostal movement. So I grew up where you didn't go to movies in theaters and women did not wear pants. They always wore dresses and The really devout women never cut their hair. There was no makeup. It was was a strange and, in its own way, charming environment. I don't think in the 60s and 70s, you have to remember I'm old, so in the 60s and 70s, some of the ways that that tradition at the time marginalized the voice of women was reflective of the culture. But I always was interested in the fact that the holiness movement seemed to be more focused on what the women were wearing and how the women were looking than what the men who were the leaders and the preachers and the pastors were doing. So Hmm. that was a learning even as a teenager. (laughs) Do you have brothers and sisters? I have one sister. She is two and a half years younger than me. She's been a a dental assistant for the last 30 years and is looking forward to not being that (laughs) for very much longer. So my mom and my mom and dad met each other as very young people. They were married when my mom was 19. My dad was 18 and they had been married 58 years when he died in 2012. Hmm. 58 years. Wow. That's commitment. Yes. So when you were a kid, middle school, high school, when you start thinking to yourself about what you want to be when you grow up, what sort of things were were you thinking about? Oh, I was having all kinds of conversations in my head about being a teacher. I always loved history. 
I had a desire and a love for architecture. And so I toyed with the hmm. architecture thing. But at the end of the day, I was really too much a liberal arts guy. Math was a struggle for me, and it didn't take me long to figure out there's a lot of math involved in being an architect, and I'm probably not going to get there. So I was really focused on teaching things and particularly history. I had a keen interest in the history of the United States, particularly around the era of the Civil War. And then I was also very involved in, in my local church. And because the Church of God tended to be somewhat isolationist, and so you couldn't go to dances, like I didn't go to my senior prom because good holiness people didn't go to dances. We didn't go in, the way they said it back then was, you didn't go swimming with members of the opposite sex. So it was a very locked down kind of, kind of religious environment, but it was the sort of hub of my social experience. And so youth group was a big deal. And that particular tradition at that time also had room in their services for young people to participate. And so if you wanted to do something, they would happily let you do it. And a Right about the time I was probably 14 or 15 years old, we had this traveling evangelist come through. And in the course of the revival, the sort of extended week-long series of religious gatherings, I had what I can only describe as a pretty profound uh, spiritual experience. And when I went to talk to my pastor about it after the revival had concluded, I said to him, because, again, given the format and given the parameters of the things that I knew and I had experienced to that point, I said, I might be being called to preach. And in true Pentecostal fashion, he said, well, glory to God, brother, do you want to preach on Wednesday night? <laughs> Because there was very much this sense of, if you're called to preach, preach. And if it works out, well, you were called. And if it doesn't, well, maybe you misheard. And so I think I was 15 and change when he let me preach on a Wednesday night. And that, I think the sermon lasted every bit about 10 minutes. Heck, who knew I was an Episcopalian in training at that point? Um, <laughs> And in that <laughs> 10 minutes, I dispersed every bit of theological knowledge that I had and some that I wasn't sure about. Good. <laughs> but it, it, went, it went okay enough that I got invited to do some other things. I probably preached my first official sermon. Um, well, I remember the day, and it is because it coincided. It was July the 4th, 1976. So I was 17 years old mm. or thereabouts, and um, I preached at a Church of God church uh, in Florida where my, my mom's sister attended. The preacher was on vacation, and they brought me in. And wow. so I held forth for about 30 minutes, uh, and I don't know whether it was any good or not, but it, it, really, <laughs> was the, it was really the start, I guess, of that. 
sort of desire. So what was that, which led the, the spiritual yeah. experience you had during that revival? Mm-hmm. Can you describe that? Yeah, it, well, first of all, there's always this free form kind of worship that happens the way I describe. And again, my, my experience is dated now because I know that this is not the way most churches of God um, churches do worship these days. But back then it was very much a three part, particularly on Sunday nights when people really sort of relaxed and weren't worried about visitors and scaring any of those folks off. Um, there was really three parts to the worship service. There was the singing and praying part. There was the preaching part. And then there was this part where people were prayed for, prayed for each other. And that could go anywhere between 20 minutes to an hour. And that was where you really saw some of those things that most people would think of as demonstrable markers of Pentecostalism, the speaking in tongues, the dancing in the spirit, being slain in the spirit, all of those kind of very out there um, experiences for people who are not familiar with it. And so on this particular evening, the, the evangelist led us through a prayer time. And at one point, he did what we called in the church, calling people out. And that was, he was sort of in this space where he's, he's really intuitively picking people to pray for individually. And so the, he pointed the finger at me, and I did what everybody always did when an evangelist pointed a finger at you. You just went, me? You know, he kind of whispered that, me? And he nodded. And so I got up and he laid his hands on me. And the next sort of moment that I really became aware of what was going on around me, I had been one of those people slain in the spirit. And for, I'm guessing, uh, 10 15 minutes, I was just in this place. It wasn't exactly an out-of-body experience, but I was in this place of intense, um, beyond words, so I didn't speak in tongues or any of that, Um, but it was really a place beyond being verbal. And all I can tell you is that I just felt this profound sense of peace, this amazing wave of being loved for who I was and not because I needed to be something else. Um, I just felt at home. And when I managed to be able to collect myself and get up off the floor, I felt changed. And not in, a, not in the way that I had been, quote, saved, unquote. That 
sort of in that tradition, the making a public profession of faith that had already happened to me when I was like seven. So, but this moment was this just sense where time, it wasn't that long of a time that I was in that place, wherever that place was or is, but it was like time stood still for that, for those minutes where I was in that sort of place where I still can't, I can describe what went on, but I can't describe what happened. I can't describe what happened internally. The thing that popped into my mind as you were talking is St. St. Paul says, wherever he says it, that he was caught up into the third heaven. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. Uh, and this this uh, kind of it must have been this sort of ex- transcendent experience for him, this being lifted right uh, out of right. normal, whatever whatever it is, whatever he's lifted out, out of. Certainly out of time, and and you know the this is what every first year Greek student finds out. You know, just like every first year Hebrew student finds out that ruach is the word for spirit, uh, every first year Greek student finds out that there's two words for time. Mm-hmm. All right, Gary. Kronos. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. What are they? Yeah. Give, give us a lesson. So, yeah. So, Kronos, which is chronology, and Kairos, which is a time out of time. And so that's. And as a person who seems always bound by Kronos, which is who I am, uh, that was a few minutes long ago where I was literally out of time. Hmm. Um, so 17 and you're preaching. Mm-hmm. Yep. What, take us through the next couple of years. Did you go to, did you so, go to college? So, yes. So after, so after preaching a little bit here and there, I decided I would go to the Church of God-sponsored liberal arts college, which is now Lee University, which is in Cleveland, Tennessee, and I was going to major in Bible and theology. And keep in mind, again, this was the mid-70s, when still Pentecostals, as a rule, didn't quite trust a formally educated preacher. I remember the pastor at the time telling me, brother, you don't need more theology. You need more neology. You'll just pray. God will give you what you need to say. But I felt pretty committed to learning. And so I went to Lee University. And and it was during that time, even though all of my professors were good, solid, fine, upstanding members of the Church of God. They had all gotten their PhDs at places like St. Louis University and Union Seminary in Richmond and University of Florida. So they had been, they were an eclectic group. And the first time I read Karl Barth, Augustine of Hippo, uh, the theologians that I didn't have any idea, Martin Luther, John Calvin, I had no idea any of these people existed. And so the first time I read about historical critical, um, historical critical scholarship, it sort of made so much sense to me in terms of, oh, 
that's why Noah couldn't make up his mind how many animals he was supposed to take on the ark. And that's why there seems like a difference in the creation stories. And so anyway, all of that opened my intellectual capacity about studying scripture and the matters of faith. But what happened is I come out of that learning environment and begin my ministry as a pastor. And it didn't take me very long to figure out that I was no longer fitting in that particular environment. Hmm. Um, my people would often say that I really wasn't much of a preacher, but I was a good teacher. And what they meant by that was that I was solidly missing all of the theatrics that they were accustomed to ah. when they heard a, a preacher preach. Um, and so I'll briefly just mention that what happens during this time, while I was in college, I got married and early on in my pastorate, the marriage began to fray. And after about, we had been married about four and a half years and in an attempt to try and um, really salvage the, the relationship, I resigned the pastorate. And that's when my wife at the time and I moved to Florida. I got a job where they say all, um, they say all recycled Pentecostal preachers get jobs selling life insurance. So that's what I did. <laughs> um, sold life insurance. The marriage did not survive. And when I notified the, the head office of the church of God that my marriage had ended, they basically sent me a note that it was really official and whatnot. They assured me that they were praying for my soul and they invited me to have a nice life and uh, thus ended my career as a clergy person in the church of God. Um, they at the time had no room uh, for people who couldn't kind of keep up the particular appearance of what a preacher needed to be. Again, they have since moderated that particular stance. So I don't want, I don't want to represent uh, the church of God as something that it is now. I simply lived through a part of the church's chapter where it had some different views. Um, so I sold insurance for, eight and a half years. And during that time met my current wife, Tabitha. We got married. We've been, we just celebrated our 31st uh, wedding anniversary. So that was your mid twenties when? Yes. Yes. That's mid twenty. By the mid twenties, I'd been a pastor, had resigned the pastorate and had uh, been shown the exit strategy from ministry in that particular church. I imagine that uh, was disillusioning. I mean, you felt as though you'd been uh -huh. called by God to this. And then right. a couple of years later, maybe not. It really was a time of um, trying to figure out where God was. I knew enough from my theological studies to know that belief in God does not inoculate us against the difficulties of life. I did not anticipate that 
within a pretty short order, I would deal with a divorce, deal with an extended period of clinical depression, mm. be homeless, basically living on my sister's sofa for three years, uh, have real difficulty continuing to hold any kind of job because of both because of really my my depression stuff so it really was my time in the wilderness um, it, it felt like it never would end um, but it did end so what what it, what happened next so the the place that i always am grateful for because after the church of god left after the church of god left me i left it and so i sojourned amongst the southern baptists for a while never became an official uh member but early on in our marriage tabitha and i were a part of a southern baptist a smaller southern baptist congregation and the pastor at the time really began to invite me to do things around church, which was really nice. It was a very healing kind of opportunity to teach a Sunday school class, to preach occasionally. I had to promise him that I wouldn't do any of that wild Pentecostal stuff. And I told him, no worries. I didn't do a wild, the wild Pentecostal stuff when I was one. So <laughs> you're good. Um, but along the way, my vocation, my work life had, had sort of, evened out and I was working for an insurance agency in town and one of my co-workers asked me um, this was 1990 what are you doing for Christmas Eve and I said I suspect I'm sitting around waiting on Christmas Day and she goes well why don't you come to church with me hmm. and I said where do you go and she said, I go to the, to St. Peter's Episcopal church. And I said, well, sure, I'll go. So I went home and I told Tabitha, I was like, person at work invited me to go to the Episcopal church on Christmas Eve. And Tabitha said, can I come? And I said, sure. So we go to this church and it's the quintessential Gothic revival, late 19th century church, stained glass, heart of pine pews, um, smells like an Episcopal church. Now that I've been around enough, I know it smell. It has that smell of books and Murphy's you know, oil soap and Murphy's wax. oil soap yeah. <laughs> and beeswax. Yeah. Yes. With some incense. Um, and anyway, the procession happens. We sing, Oh, come, come all you faithful. And when the priest turned around to the congregation, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed be his kingdom now and forever. And then he said, the collect for purity. Hmm. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. By the time he got to the end of that prayer, I was like, where has this been? <laughs> I fell in love hard and fast. I could not believe it. It was just stunning. The liturgy, the 
the music. Of course, it's Christmas Eve, and every Episcopal church kind of does it up on Christmas Eve. But I went back the next Sunday. Before New Year's, I had, I had gotten myself, and this is before Amazon, so I'd gone to, I'd gone to Jacksonville to, to look around in a bookstore and find a book of common prayer. Um, I was just smitten. Anyway, on the way back home from Christmas Eve service, my wife asked me, well, how did you like it? And I said, I loved it. She goes, I know you loved it because they pray like you talk. (laughs) And she said, you know why I loved it? I said, (laughs) she said, she said, you know why I loved it? I said, no, tell me. Well, my wife was a widow at age 20. Her high, she married her high school sweetheart, and he died of leukemia um, 15 months after they were married. And she had plenty of bad theology given to her. And she said, what I liked about this place was in the sermon tonight, and she did mention she enjoyed the fact the sermon was only 12 minutes long. Um, she goes, in the sermon tonight, the pastor, we didn't know enough to say the rector, the pastor said that Christmas is a time when we say there's peace on earth, and there's not peace on earth, and sometimes there's not peace in our hearts, and I don't know why. And Tabitha said, any church where the preacher can stand up and admit that he doesn't have all the answers is the place I want to be. And so, um, and so our journey with the Episcopal church began in Christmas, 1990. Um, And I eventually wound up working for that church as a Christian formation director and parish administrator and then in the mid-90s, 1997, was when I officially entered the diocesan discernment process in the Diocese of Florida. So how did you find that uh, compared to your, your experience with the Church of God? It's a very, a very different. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you go to see the preacher, like I said earlier, and, and you say, I may be called to preach. And he says, glory to God, brother. Do you want to preach on Wednesday night, right? You go to your rector and say, I, I think I'm discerning a call to holy orders. Read this book and we'll set up a committee. <laughs> exactly. And, and keep in mind that I entered the diocesan process in 1997. I first had the conversation about entering the process in 1995. Because of some, we had a transition in rectors and this and that, but it, oh, and we'd also, the diocese lived through the transition of a bishop. And so, and so I was sort of two years just kind of wondering when it could get started. And everybody around me was like, use this time. Don't be in a hurry. Everything in God's time was so different. Um, and then you enter the official process, and it begins to feel a little like you're walking the tightrope between trying to show that you feel certain enough about this call that people take you seriously, mm-hmm. but not so certain that people think you're arrogant. Yeah. And it's an interesting tightrope to 
<laughs> so how did you find it? Did you feel uh, encouraged all along the way? In my case, the, 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 my sponsoring parish was very encouraging. The clergy, the people, the leaders there. And in a lot of ways, being able to be their parish administrator for five and a half years put me in a place where I understood how an Episcopal church worked hmm. um, a, a little in a more, in a deeper fashion than perhaps other folks. I was 40 years old when I went to seminary. So I started this discernment process officially when I was 38. Um, I found, I found at the time the Diocese of Florida had retooled their process to try and make it a little less antagonistic. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I really felt like, for the most part, people were coming alongside to discern. This did not prevent them from asking difficult questions or pointed questions or questions that were hard to answer or questions that made me really sort of take in a deep breath because they were some pretty, there were some pretty pointed questions. Um, but I found that process not to be as onerous as others of my colleagues from other dioceses have experienced. So off you went to seminary? Is mm-hmm. that where, where did you go? Yes, I went to Virginia Seminary mm-hmm. um, in Alexandria, or as some folks in our church like to refer to it, that little Bible college on the Potomac. Um, <laughs> I've never heard it called that. Well, I think that in some quarters, people think it's too Protestant. Uh, it certainly has a tradition of the kind of low church, Virginia, morning, pre- daily office kind of. It, it, that was certainly very much, it's very much how it was when I was there. Again, things aren't static. So VTS is, is much different than when I was there, which is only 20 years ago. Hmm. Um, I graduated in 2002, so I got there in 1999. It's, it's a much different place now. But then it was, we had chapel once a day. It was morning prayer three days a week, unless there was a red letter day or some holy day. The community Eucharist was always on Wednesday morning. And there was one day a week you did small group worship. So it, it had a very different feel than some friends of mine who've been to other seminaries where a Eucharist, a daily Eucharist was a part of the rhythm of that seminary's life. At the time class, there were 44 people in my class, and it was about half female, half male. I think there were just a, maybe it was like 53, 47 men to women. Um, Half of the half of the group was under the age of thirty. Uh, almost half of the group was single, so it was a much it was a much more, uh, in terms of demographics, a much more diverse class than what a lot of people had experienced up to that time. What was I, the hardest thing for you sliding into the Episcopal Church? Just coming from a Pentecostal mm. and Southern Baptist background, 
uh, I mean, I, I'm sure down in the, the diocese of Florida, uh, the Episcopal Church was was probably not as progressive as it is in some parts of the country, but the Episcopal Church as a whole, even back then, was pretty progressive by American Christian standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, was did that feel like a breath of fresh air for you, or did you have to sort through some kind of theological assumptions, recalibrate your 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 mental needle? Yes. So so part I think I think the biggest thing that I had to recalibrate, and this will get you some this will get you some email, is hmm. The immediacy of the spirit um, was something that I really missed when I came into the Episcopal Church. And I've never been quite sure about the fact that that as Episcopalians, we can ascribe the movement of the spirit to things in such a way as to make us feel good about our decisions. Well, we made this decision and it was a moment. So it must've been a move of the spirit. I've always struggled with that a little bit um, because I feel like our pneumatology sometimes is a little thin. Now that does not mean that the church of God had a fully developed enriched pneumatology, but it certainly believed that the spirit was alive and active and moving within the congregation and within each individual and that we were a spirit guided people. Sometimes I think we lead with our, with our sort of left brained intellect, and then we invite the spirit to tag along with us. Hmm. Um, And, and one of the things that still gets me to this day is the language of the prayer book I experience as spirit-infused. The prayer that we say over the newly baptized, give them an inquiring and discerning heart and the gift of joy and wonder in all your works. I can barely get through that prayer. (laughs) I just feel the spirit in it. And even when I try to explain to people, look, I'm not all sentimental. I'm not getting warm fuzzies because I'm holding a baby, though holding babies are really, that's really fun. <laughs> yeah. But it's this, it's this intersection of the Spirit's movement, the body of Christ gathered, this new life full of possibility and this amazing prayer, which encapsulates what the Spirit is doing and invites God's presence into the life of this newly baptized, I know I'm preaching now, <laughs> it just overwhelms me. And it feels like, it feels like a lot of times Episcopalian goes, well, that was a beautiful service, really cute baby. Um, I got to beat the Methodist to brunch. So, so that has been, a, that is a continuing adjustment for me. Um, to yeah. understand that because I tend to be a, I, I mean, I think not to get into too many generalizations, but I am a heart person. 
I've got it. I've got an intellect, but I've, I always tend to lead with my heart that that is a residual effect, I think, of being a Pentecostal. Um, hmm. And so I will. And so that has been that has been an ongoing um, adjustment. I, I, it is true that I've brought those things with me. The formation that I had as a kid still very much, very much with me. So you graduate straight on to ordination? Yes, yes. So graduated in May of 2002, ordained to the transitional diaconate uh, in June in the Diocese of Florida, but there were no, there wasn't any place for me to go in the Diocese of Florida, but thankfully there was a place for me to be in the Diocese of Southern Virginia. So I went to Christ in St. Luke's Church in Norfolk, which was a fairly large resource-sized parish um, in the Ghent neighborhood of Norfolk. It looked, it still looks like a cathedral. Um, it, if Southern Virginia, Diocese of Southern Virginia had a cathedral, they would have to pick Christ in St. Luke's because it looks like one. They don't have a cathedral? They do not. It's a Southern diocese that does not, like huh. the Diocese of Georgia, the Diocese of North Carolina, there are plenty of dioc- dioceses of Virginia doesn't have a cathedral. Um, so it's sort of a throwback time. At any rate, I was there. They had, I was the assistant or the associate and I had sort of opportunity to do work with the various committees and whatnot. But when you're a second vocation priest and you're 43, when you come out, no one expects you to stay for very long. Um, and so I was there from was there two years, and then early, well, early on, like February of 2004, I received a call from the Bishop of Milwaukee, Stephen Miller, who I knew when I was in seminary because I was his seminarian. Um, so he calls me up and he says, I've got this church I want you to think about. And I said, where is it? And he said, Wauwatosa. And I said, where the hell is Wauwatosa? He said, it's just outside of Milwaukee. (laughs) And I said, Steve, it's cold up there. And he said, just, (laughs) just, just come and just come and see, you know, like, oh, great. You're going to pull the gospel of John thing on me. Come and see. Okay. I got it. And so um, my wife and I are then seven year old uh, hadn't turned seven. He was six. Um, We, came up here and interviewed at Trinity Wauwatosa and started here in July of 2004. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. <laughs> well, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot that you could say. I will tell you that it never once occurred to me that, that I would be what they would call a long-term rector. Um, but this has been a place where I've gotten to know and love the people and there's been enough, there's been enough things that happened here that just keep me interested. It's a great place, great people, great congregation. And for a Southerner, Milwaukee's not a bad place to live. (laughs) So what, uh, what anchors your priesthood? Hmm. What keeps you grounded? I think that that the things that still keep me are 
the daily office, morning and evening prayer. Um, now, I'm not always the most, uh, I'm not always right on time every day, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Monday, you know, morning, evening, Compline. It's the, it's that sort of prayer book round of being engaged with scripture, doing, doing the prayers of the church. Um, I, like my wife said, the prayer book resonates with me. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing as a, as the rector, as a, as a parish priest, the th thing that anchors me is, is being with people in their, in their good times and in their bad times, doing the work of the church that sometimes is dreadfully slow and fraught and mundane. But I'm actually one of those clergy that enjoys vestry meetings, probably has something to do with the vestries that I've had here at Trinity through the years. Um, the liturgical year anchors me. Um, which I think is one of the reasons this particular time has been so unsettling because Holy Week is so important to me and to my priesthood um, in terms of making that journey every year. Um, and so it's the liturgical year. It's the, it's the sort of day in and day outness of parish life and getting to do baptisms and weddings and funerals and visit people in the hospital and, and the daily office. I've got a friend who, who once said, pray the prayers of the church and what the spirit does with the prayers is none of your damn business. And that has been pretty good advice to me through the years. Hmm. It's good stuff. So what's the, what's the, the, which one shall we start with? What's the best part of your vocation? Hmm. You can interpret that however you want to. The most fun, the most fun for me is still baptisms. I love baptisms. Um, <laughs> the The moments of sometimes deepest connection are are what most people think are sad, but and they are often are. But funerals are those moments of really deep connection. I and celebrating the Eucharist. I think every priest is is drawn to that in some way or another. And in, and this time right now, where our communities are not gathering for public worship, um, I find that I'm missing the Eucharistic community gathered around the holy table, sharing in the holy meal. That feels like a real loss right now because that's a sort of weekly part of my rhythm of life. So, so those are the, those are the things that are fun parts. I, I had a, I had a, my parish priest, my sponsoring priest, um, in fact, once said that celebrating the Eucharist every week was the chocolate chip cookie you got to eat as a parish priest for having eaten a week's worth of broccoli in between. Um, <laughs> Because sometimes parish ministry is tough, right? Yeah. It's there's there's the little slings and arrows, there are the frustrations. There's always too much to do and not enough time. There's always more ideas than there is money. Um, it's it's all of the stuff that we navigate 
day in and day out, but it's when the community gathers for those big, for the weekly celebrations, the high holy days are the, are those sort of nodal moments in people's lives that that's, that's when it all comes together for me. Yeah. I once had a conversation with a, a friend of mine who we were talking about, um, you know, clergy pay and getting, you know, getting, getting paid to be priests. And I said, you know, in, in my mind, I, 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 I celebrate the Eucharist for free. That's a, that's a blessing and an honor. And I would mm-hmm. do that. And I, I have done that. Um, uh, even when I'm kind of not attached to a worshiping community, you know, if mm-hmm. I have the opportunity and someone says, you know, I need a celebrant, uh, I need somebody to preside. I I'll jump at it at a, at a moment's mm-hmm. notice. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I get paid for is the, basically the small business nonprofit management, which Absolutely. I feel constantly under equipped for. Um, and frankly, you know, it's the bit that takes up the, the, the bulk of the time and the mental energy trying to figure out how to, um, how to serve the needs of that mm-hmm. uh, that kind of institutional side of thing. I know it's very uh, popular these days to kind of poo-poo the institution. Like we're supposed to be mm-hmm. thinking not of institutional survival, but of, you know, the ministry and mission of the church beyond the walls and things like that. Well, maybe so, but for the time being, at least the institution, um, does serve a very important purpose in whole in, in providing a an organizational container of resources and policies and practices for holding a community together. Yep. I'm not aware of very many uh, times in human history where you get more than ten people together. Um, we're not allowed to these days anyway because of social mm-hmm. distancing. But mm-hmm. and you know if you if you want to get more than your nuclear family size uh, group of humans together to do anything, mm-hmm. the first thing you have to do is set up um, the guidelines, the policies and procedures and expectations and division of labor that you're going to use um, to stay together. Uh, right. and and to move in in one direction um so i'm i'm not as uh critical of of you know of the institutional maintenance side of the priesthood as some people are i i mean i don't feel as though i do as good a job as at it as i was like as i would like to but um but i mean i i can't imagine a church without that organizational side of it. Well, um, and it's, it's part of the, you know, uh, part of the, the ministry of parish priests. Right. And, and just to add to that and this notion, and we're hearing a lot of it these days, particularly in the last few weeks that the church is not a building. Well, we all know that. We all know that the church is the living, breathing body of Christ. We know that. And what I've said through the years is Episcopalians. Now, uh, I can't speak for everybody else, but we are temple people. We're not tabernacle people. We, 
We have trouble over time setting up and taking down and doing portable church. And doing portable church is always in service of eventually having a place of your own. We're temple people. We've even got a hymn that has it in the verse, in the verses. You know, I think it's uh, Christ has made our sure foundation. And I guess it's the third verse to this temple where we call thee. We, we say that. So holy places and the maintenance that comes with them is holy work. And, you know, it's, it's, listen, dealing with boilers is not my favorite thing to do. <laughs> oh, the boilers. I'm grateful for the boilers. Yes, especially in a Wisconsin winter, we yeah. are grateful. Yep. So what advice would you have for someone, you know, someone who's just now leaving a Pentecostal background and is feeling drawn to preach, brother or sister? Uh, or sister. I, but is also being drawn to whatever it is that drew you towards the Episcopal Church, towards that uh, essence of a relationship with God that is found in that that call act. Yeah. So what I would say, and what I've said to uh, people, is if you're if you're like a Pentecostal and you're feeling drawn, the the place to begin is to simply experience the spirit in that the spirit leads the spirit is the wind that blows wherever it will and as contraindicated as it mostly seems to people that a pentecostal could wind up you know how does someone go from running the backs of pews to making the sign of the cross that's the work of the spirit i you know at the end of the day it's a little bit mysterious to me but i would say to someone follow the spirit, but also recognize that the way we understand the work of the spirit in the Episcopal church is that we often understand that spirit is working, not simply within a person, but through structures and procedures. And that will be a difficult discipline to inculcate within oneself, but it is necessary. And so to remind former Pentecostals um, that, that we have these gifts of structure and policy and procedure and all of that, that the spirit works within and through, and, and that is a gift, even if sometimes it doesn't seem to move as fast as, or with the, or with C, that we often feel as Pentecostals. Thank you. So sure. what's your, what's your pop culture recommendation? What's uh, what's the, the book, the movie, the video game, the album that is taking but, your mind off coronavirus and helping you. So, I, stay so I've got, I've got, um, I've got two uh, movie well, sort of binge-worthy television shows. Uh, the first is would, would not necessarily be take your mind off of things, but the Netflix series Messiah has really a lot of opportunity for reflection on what does that word mean and how 
do we experience Messiah and how do our preconceived notions about Messiah interfere with our acceptance of God's movement around, um, among us? So, so that, that particular series is an interesting opportunity to just explore, explore the whole concept. Right. Um, and then, so that's sort of really high and mighty and, and kind of heavy. Um, I just started watching the HBO series, The Righteous Gemstones, which is about a televangelist family, hmm. and it is a stitch. Um, but let me just sort of name, it is not for the faint of heart, um, but, but it, is, it is an interesting watch. Does that mean there's it, a lot of swearing in it, Gary? Uh, there's a lot of a lot of things in it. So. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> so, so you know, buckle <laughs> up. Um, and then, and then I guess I don't really have a, a a popular book to recommend because I'm not much of a fiction reader. But I'm currently reading Will Willimon's autobiography, Accidental Preacher which is classic Willimon and a lot of fun. Thank you. Sure. Um, all right. I, I don't usually do this, but it is Holy Week, and we are all mm-hmm. under a lot of stress. So I'm going to ask you, Father Gary, if you'll mm-hmm. conclude this with, with a blessing for our listeners. Would you sure. be willing to do that? Sure, Thank I you. can do that. peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Thanks again for listening to my conversation with Gary Manning. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, on Twitter. I'm at Apple Tree Pods. And on Facebook, there's a page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. And there's another podcast which launched last week which is called Notes from Norwich. We've released one episode so far. That's me getting together with my friends Marguerite and Jan, and we are reading together and talking about Dame Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. So look for that, Notes from Norwich. Uh, You can find information about that on the Apple Tree Podcasts webpage or by following Apple Tree Pods on Twitter. The intro music to this podcast is Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. The closing music that you're hearing now is St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.